The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program, and just wow. Um, some weekends hit me like a ton of bricks. This one did. And for no reason other than I could have just lost myself in the weekend. And here's Monday rolls around. I'm completely unprepared. I'm actually in the middle of a computer uh, swapping and an upgrade going on here in the studio, which makes it a little bit more complicated. But that's okay. We'll power through it, particularly with the discussion we're going to have tonight. I'm looking forward to this because I love it when we have filmmakers on that uh, that undertake projects that kind of look into our world a little bit from an outside looking in. You know, when I say our world, I'm talking about the topics that we talk about here, whether it's uh, cryptids or UFOs or ghosts or conspiracies, whatever it happens to be, when a filmmaker, particularly a mainstream filmmaker, starts to peel back layers of the onion to kind of see what they can find out about something within our sphere of uh, uh, topics. I find that very fascinating. And tonight we're going to be doing that with Christopher Munch. Christopher is a filmmaker and he has a new film out called the 11th green. The 11th green is a, uh, a docudrama that discusses Dwight Eisenhower, president Eisenhower and the possibility that he had involvement with UFO or extraterrestrial activity. Now this is a, something that's been circulating in uh, within UFO communities for a long time. So it'll be interesting to see what uh, Christopher has to say, talk about his film, which is available for viewing for people, and uh, have a real uh, interesting outside-looking-in take on it. I'm looking forward to this. But we've got a lot of great stuff coming up on the show, and the best way for you to be part of it, if you haven't done this already, which I know many of you have, is subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is easy to find. It's just uh, JV Johnson on YouTube. And then also find our Twitch channel which is also just JV Johnson. Both Subscribe to both, follow both, whatever it takes. Our numbers are climbing on both, and I really do appreciate everyone who's taken the time not just to watch some of our uh, shows, but also to subscribe and follow and share the information on their social media so other people can do the same. That really helps out a lot, so I appreciate that. We don't have much more to talk about. I, I do want to uh, jump into break here so we can get our guest on the phone, and then we can begin our conversation again. Tonight we'll be talking with Christopher Munch about his new film. I think it's a couple months old, been, on the, been out for a couple months, called The 11th Green. It's a presidential UFO conversation specifically about Dwight Eisenhower. And that's tonight's conversation on Beyond Reality. And we'll be right back. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself... What is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We've got a great one for you tonight, and we're looking forward to this conversation. Anytime we can combine presidential politics, or at least a president, and the discussion of UFOs, we're in for two things. One of those things is a great discussion, and the other thing that we are usually in for when we do something like this is either a power outage, a data drop, 
um, a, a car crashing through the floor of the studio. Some craziness always happens when we have this type of conversation. But we're going to forge ahead anyway. We've got a terrific guest for you tonight. Christopher Munch is a writer-director. He's been making character-driven independent films for more than 30 years. They've been screened and won jury prizes at top international film festivals, including Berlin, Sundance, Toronto, and others. And tonight we're going to be talking specifically about the 11th Green. It's been a passion project of his for the past seven years, and it reflects his evolving interests and breakthrough energy and exopolitics. He's also got films including the uh, Letters from the Big Man and The Hours and Times. We might touch on those as well. Christopher, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you on with us tonight. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, I always, I'm always curious because I've dabbled with the film world myself. I, I ran a, a horror movie convention for many, many years. It's kind of on hold right now with COVID. Um, but, you know, I got to know a lot of filmmakers. I got to know a lot of actors. And I've actually produced a film or two myself um, as just a financier. But I always love the passion filmmakers bring to their projects. How did you become a filmmaker? Well, I guess I was one of those people who just started, you know, making amateur films as a as a kid, really, as a teenager. Uh, one of, well, a couple of those actually was in a film festival that was sponsored by the local PBS affiliate, and they broadcast them. Uh, and I went to work for them, actually, as a crew person on some of their documentaries uh, while I was still in high school. And at the time, they were still making everything on film. Uh, they hadn't, you know, switched to electronic field production yet. And that was a really nice experience. And then when I finished high school, I wrote a feature myself, um, you know, that I intended to make, which I did make over the course of several years, but it, it never really saw the light of day. It was more in the realm of uh, uh, student effort. And uh, and so I, so I really sort of learned by doing um, the first film that I had that really saw the light of day came out uh, in the early 90s called The Hours and Times. And, uh, you know, it was very much a handmade film, um, you know, minuscule budget, uh, micro budget, um, and, you know, just a couple of good actors and, and, and myself. And that was how I started, really. Do you mind if we talk about that film for just a second? Because I happen to notice the description of it. And um, it has something to do with the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it, it was a film that sort of built upon the mythology of uh, Brian Epstein and John Lennon having taken a holiday in Spain together yeah. uh, in 1963. And is kind of a two-handed film, just a series of dialogues between the two men over the course of a long weekend. I'm curious because as a Beatles fan, I know that that particular trip uh, has been surrounded with controversy in the in the sense that uh, Brian Epstein was um, was a gay man. And uh, there was actual speculation that maybe John and Brian actually had a romantic relationship. Well, it was certainly a pretty intense friendship. Uh, whether it was romantic or not, that's that's something else altogether. But I think it was it was very important to both of them. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting about the hours and times is that it took place uh, at a point in Lennon's career before a lot of the events had happened that really served to, you know, shape him into the very wise, uh, compassionate, beloved figure that we sort of knew from later in the 60s and 
and 70s uh, later in his life. Uh, he, you know, obviously was still immensely talented and immensely charismatic, but, but Brian Epstein really, I think, played into um, uh, the making of the man and, and his uh, growing uh, worldliness and, and certainly uh, uh, the evolution of his, his work as a musical artist. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and I can tell you don't really want to touch that topic, and I don't believe it personally. I just was curious as to what your thoughts were, but I've heard it circle. You know how these some of these rumors just kind of persist, and uh, there's no getting rid of them. Um, but your interest in Brian Epstein and John Lennon is that uh, come from a love of the Beatles? You know, not so much. I think at the time that I made the film, it it seemed like a sort of chamber work uh, that Mm -hmm. could be realized with the very minimal means that I knew that I had, and it was an excuse to go to Barcelona. uh, And, uh, you know, they were two figures that I admired very much. um, And, you know, the... you know, the emotions of the story uh, were something that I felt at the time that I could bring some sort of voice to. So, you know, it was a nice film, and I was just very appreciative that it managed to find an audience. I, When I made the picture, because I had already done these other kind of abortive efforts, I had no sense at all that the film would ever really be seen. And, and when it was seen and shown at festivals, and some people said they liked it, uh, it was just a very welcome, very very much appreciated uh, boost, you know, to my to my career. This year, in fact, um, will mark I think the 40th anniversary of John Lennon's death. And uh, when John Lennon died, he was 40 years old. So we've turned a page here, or we'll be turning a corner, whereby John Lennon will have been gone longer than he lived. Um, that's a sad uh, moment to commemorate, but that's where we are. Yes. Yes, I mean, and and thinking back, you know, on his life and on his legacy, he really was one of those inspiring figures, I think, who, uh, you know, continues to live on in people's hearts. Uh, even if it weren't for uh, the Beatles phenomenon, I think he, as as an activist and as a just a, a humanist, uh, really would, would be influential still today. I love that perspective. Let's talk about your newest film. It's called The Eleventh Green. Tell me about the title. Well, the title derives from uh, the place where President Eisenhower had his winter house in his post-presidential years, uh, which was at a golf club in Palm Desert, California, and it was lit- literally right on the fairway uh, on the 11th green. So that that's the literal, in the literal sense, where the title comes from. Um, but in a larger, more mythological sense, I guess it, it you know, could have could have a wider meaning than that. We, um, you know, when, when filmmakers go to put a, uh, a project on the table, if you will, uh, you know, there's two different kinds that I've seen. And there's probably more than that. But there's, there's the kind that where people uh, want to make something that, the, that, you know, they know, um, you know, is going to be uh, easily appealing to a lot of people. Then there are people who want, just need to tell a story. Uh, I sense that you really wanted to tell a story here. That's true. Yeah, that's true. And I can't say that, you know, prior to embarking on this journey that I had a huge knowledge of either um, uh, ufology or exopolitics, so-called, or the Eisenhower presidency. Uh, But during the long gestation of the screenplay, um, it was an opportunity to delve into all of those areas a lot more deeply. Uh, One entry point for me was uh, a short film that I had made uh, I guess it was in 2013 for ITVS, the, the independent television service, um, that dealt with uh, an inventor of 
uh, exotic uh, propulsion technology, uh, an MIT inventor uh, who had been outcast and, and whose work had been suppressed, actually. And he was living in a very remote place uh, on the Oregon coast and encountered um, um, a tsunami and flees with his young son uh, and, in the course of doing that, encounters um, a small rural intentional community where he meets another inventor, and this kind of rekindles his passion for his work. So I suppose the topic of, of breakthrough uh, energy and propulsion was a kind of entry point for me into the topic of, of UFOs, since the two were kind of intertwined in a way. Having not, uh, as you said, not really uh, paid much attention to ufology uh, prior to this, did you have you had any experiences of your own? Not that I can remember. <laughs> I've, yeah, not that I can remember. Uh, although I certainly have known people who have, um, and again, I'm you know very sympathetic to uh, a lot of a lot of these phenomena. And inter- interestingly, my father was uh, uh, an astrophysicist and astronomer um, who worked a lot in the planetary probes for NASA. And although he didn't, he was a very orthodox scientist in that way and didn't really have a lot of feelings one way or another about uh, UFOs, per se, I was very interested in some of the people that he knew during his life, uh, during his professional life, and the whole sort of post-war generation of, of, of scientists that he uh, uh, he was associated with. And, and one of those people, uh, Donald Menzel, uh, the famous Harvard astronomer, is reputed to have had an involvement in the saucer business uh, in, in the years after World War II. And and of course, during the '60s, was a kind of uh, public debunker of, of UFOs. Um, but it, again, although my father knew nothing of Menzel's alleged secret work, uh, he he still fascinated me as a figure. So, um, and and I, I had read a few books, uh, a few of the classic books on UFOs, uh, such as *The Interrupted Journey* uh, by John Fuller. Uh, and I had read Clear Intent by Fawcett and Greenwood and a couple of books by uh, Heineck and Valet. But apart from that, prior to making the film, I didn't have an extensive knowledge of it. So for someone who doesn't have an extensive knowledge of it, I'm, uh, I'm assume, assuming you had the, probably the same basic curiosity that everybody has when this topic comes up. Uh, but this particular angle, and to, to decide to commit seven years or however long it took you to make the film to a project like this, where did it show up on your radar that made you decide to commit that much time and energy and effort into this type of project? Well, I think that you know any film that I undertake at this point is going to have that that sort of commitment, um, and frankly, you know, UFOs and presidential exopolitics was kind of vast topic that really demanded that sort of attention. And it was a topic where I think typically we had seen a lot of films made in, in as sort of genre movies uh, in the science fiction genre. Um, you know, although, although there have been a number of, of very good, good films, like The Day the Earth Stood Still mm-hmm. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and The Man Who Fell to Earth. But in, in recent years, I think most of, the, most of the films have fallen into being sort of effects pictures or uh, 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 science fiction films as opposed to straightforward drama. And what really interested me in this subject was the sort of straightforward drama associated with President Eisenhower and the emotional what-if 
uh, involving this this man who you know was beloved and was a national hero. Um, although when he left office, his his approval rating as president, I suppose, wasn't as high as it became in subsequent years. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the idea of this this man uh, reflecting back on uh, alleged experiences involving face-to-face meetings with representatives of extraterrestrial races, you know, how would this have weighed on him uh, uh, a decade or so after his presidency, and and what might he have done differently if if he could have? What do we know of um, Eisenhower uh, during those years? Related to um, any any experience on the eleventh green, if you will, or um, things that 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 became public that nobody has to speculate about. Well, let's see. Uh, in terms of what was public, he he publicly dismissed any concerns about UFOs mm-hmm. uh, in one of his press conferences. Uh, I, I believe in '54 he he you know stated that he didn't feel that there was anything extraordinary about the phenomenon but then again that's what pretty much everybody said during that period really right. it's what harry truman said um you know so so eisenhower really did not comment directly on ufo's at all in in an official capacity um the folklore that that surrounds him and and ufo's began it would seem in 1954 um and has persisted, you know, for a number of decades. Um, there have been, uh, uh, you know, researchers who have looked into this. Uh, one of them, Art Campbell, looked into an alleged encounter that took place at Holloman Air Force Base in 1955. And in connection with that alleged incident, he he dug up some alleged eyewitnesses to it. But the documentation... Um, such as it is, is really not extensive enough to make any sort of factual uh, determination as to whether, you know, these, these events happen. But again, for me, the, the point of departure was the what-if uh, factor and yeah. uh, how, how this would have uh, had, had an effect on, on President Eisenhower and, and indeed on his, his policies in, in other areas. Uh, uh, certainly he was you know, a, a president who was fond of, of covert action, covert actions as a way of keeping us out of a hot war. And indeed, he did, you know, keep us out of a hot war, even if some of his, his covert actions in, in, for instance, Guatemala or, or um, Iran, um, in in hindsight, seem, seem very misguided. And, and certainly it could be said that we're we're living with the consequences of those those actions at this point. So, you know, his his presidency uh, certainly contained uh, some a, a very much a mixed bag of of things. Nevertheless, he's he's a figure you know I admired greatly and somebody who I think was always working working for the American people, even if some of his his uh, specific specific actions were were questionable. Let's put ourselves into the American psyche at that time, uh, early 50s. Now, you know, World War II was still fresh in everyone's minds, and there was a lot of celebration that we had won, and, and society was getting back to normal. Then you have uh, the Roswell incident in 1947, and so that, that ushers us into the 50s. Then we start having uh, many 
what we would call flying saucer sightings. So put us into the to the psyche of the American public at that time while Eisenhower was president. Well, yes, in, and certainly in '52 there was one of the biggest uh, waves uh, of, of saucer sightings. Um, what is clear from from the surviving documentation is that. Uh, people in the government and in the military took the matter very seriously, even if they they tried to uh, project uh, a certain attitude of calm or dismissal, or uh, even uh, uh, you know even trying to cast a disparaging light on individuals who had had these sightings. Uh, but the reality is, people were very much concerned, and there were were various you know bodies that were formed to study the phenomenon. Probably most famously was was Project Blue Book. Uh, but prior to that, there were um, there was Project Sign and Project Grudge, and out of those came the so-called Robertson Panel in 1953, which was organized. It was a scientific panel and had some eminent people involved in it, like uh, Luis Alvarez. Uh, uh, but the CIA convened this panel um, uh, in response to concern over some of the, the reports that the Air Force had been collecting, and the recommendation was that you know the the UFOs uh, appeared to pose no threat to national security, uh, but that it would be in the country's best interest to um, discourage attention, you know, on the part of the public. So on the one hand. A lot of people were having these sightings, uh, a lot of people in the public, and there were a lot of uh, pilots who were perhaps the most unimpeachable witnesses also having these sightings. And a lot of these events were were documented in great detail by uh, the writer Donald Kehoe uh, during the 1950s. He wrote a series of books, uh, very well written. He was a journalist, a former Marine, um, and... uh, they're a very valuable account of of how um, you know how these events unfolded, sort of blow by blow, and what the military and government did to kind of handle that flow of information. Um, so, in the popular folklore, there certainly were a lot of science fiction films in the fifties that that dealt with this, um, and there was a public fascination, you know, with the topic. Uh, you also had the the so-called contactee phenomenon taking place, where um, individuals were receiving messages from uh, people from other worlds. Um, there were events like the saucer uh, conference or uh, the gathering in in Giant Rock. Uh, people, figures like George Van Tassel, who built the Integraton uh, in in the California desert. And held these these events uh, near his his uh, airport in Landers, California, uh, and there was almost a, a cult-like uh, aspect to some of the contactee gatherings. Uh, uh, but there was also, I believe, a, a legitimate aspect to it as well. And certainly, the messages that were being put forth in these. Uh, contactee experiences were messages of, of goodwill and, and peace, and and probably uh, overriding everything else was a sense of warning and caution concerning the use of, of atomic and nuclear weapons and the potential for, for mass destruction that, that uh, was contained in in uh, that part of our, our scientific uh, 
reality at that time. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second, because that's really important. Not only did we have uh, a, a new era of peace, kind of, um, but we also had the dawn of the atomic age. Now, we had dropped two atomic bombs to end World War II, uh, but the nuclear arms race was off and running at that point. And uh, we had a new adversary in the form of the Soviet Union. We had the beginning of the Cold War. So we had the American public not only celebrating what the, the victory, but also now concerned with a nuclear holocaust or a nuclear war, you know, as 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 time went on, and an adversary um, that was kind of uh, um, what, would, what would be the word? They they were they were a bit nebulous. They were a bit uh, secretive. You know, we didn't quite understand what the Soviet Union was uh, because we couldn't understand communism. We had the the Red Scare because of all of that. So we had people on edge a little bit during that time. Indeed, yeah. I mean, that would be that would be an understatement, even. Um, and certainly, you know, children raised during that era, era grew mm-hmm. up with civil defense drills, and and you know the the misconception that we could survive a nuclear war by mm-hmm. by practicing civil defense and by building, you, yeah by getting on your desk right <laughs> you'd survive by getting yeah, under exactly. your desk yeah or or yeah or getting into your root cellar and and uh, trying to to. Uh, Waited out that way, so yes, there there certainly was a, a, a widespread generalized uh, anxiety uh, and and very much justified when you consider the magnitude of the devices we were exploding uh, in both in in the Nevada test area as well as in the Pacific, uh, and some of these devices you know were of such a magnitude that they produced results that we weren't anticipating. For right. instance, uh, well, I think it was, was it Hardtack Orange? One of the, the big thermonuclear tests of the latter part of the 50s produced an electromagnetic pulse event that uh, caused power outages in Hawaii. And uh, I think if you listen to some of the uh, uh, authorities nowadays, the biggest concern about uh, a nuclear threat from a rogue nation involves just that type of electromagnetic uh, pulse event, EMP right. event, which would would cause literally the the workings of our civilization to to grind to a halt at this point. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, there there has been a lot of talk and a lot of fear about a nation like North Korea. Who, who may not have a large nuclear arsenal, but if they put one well-placed nuclear explosion above uh, the country in the right place, uh, it could take out the entire power grid for many, many years. And and obviously, we would not survive very well without um, without electricity. That would be that would be disastrous for sure. Let's um. It's a sobering thought. Yeah, yeah it, it is very much so. Let's talk about. Um, d- d- for my audience, for for the audience here, offer you know one or two uh, a paragraph or so a description about what uh, exactly we're talking about here with the eleventh green. Well, yes, um, the eleventh green concerns a contemporary journalist um, played by Campbell Scott, uh, who at the time of his estranged father's death is summoned back to California to deal with his father's affairs. Uh, his father was a high-ranking uh, Air Force general, retired, uh, who was also involved in classified aerospace programs. And at the time of his death, the protagonist, uh, Jeremy, is working on a story involving uh, an aerospace company that is attempting to migrate 
um, so-called black world technology into the commercial aviation end of things. And the conceit for this is loosely inspired by another urban myth uh, or another another urban legend that was circling around 2008 that uh, Boeing Aircraft Corporation had intended or had attempted to do just that by lobbying support for declassification of a particular exotic technology that could be utilized uh, in commercial aviation for the benefit of you know, both its clients as well as its bottom line and the public and the environment, all these things. Um, uh, this um, conceit was written about by the physicist and uh, author Paul LaViolette, who wrote uh, an excellent book called Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion, in which he also delved into uh, some other uh, uh, alleged exotic technologies. Uh, he also looked at the B-2 spirit bomber and some of the alleged uh, exotic technology that's incorporated in the propulsion of that vehicle. Um, so at the time of um, Jeremy's father's death, he um, literally is backs into this uh, historical antecedent to his contemporary story um, by way of one of his father's associates. And uh, as a journalist then has to deal with, you know, the hard question of whether uh, the information is legitimate. Uh, he's offered some film, some astonishing film that purports to document these encounters that President Eisenhower had with an extraterrestrial visitor in the 1950s and is then faced with, you know, the reality of how to deal with that and whether to use the footage. Uh, his cohort, um, the woman who co-hosts uh, the multi-platform um, news uh, news uh, outlet that he's uh, a founding member of, uh, is very concerned, you know, about their credibility and, you know, is very concerned about the credibility of his reporting on the contemporary aerospace company that's attempting to migrate the black world technology into commercial aviation and how it would be impacted by uh, simultaneously or shortly thereafter reporting on uh, these astonishing events. So, um, in that sense, you know, the storyline uh, uh, has some elements that we've seen in the past. Um, uh, there's a, a book called The Missing Times uh, by Terry Hansen, which reports, um, uh, describes uh, uh, the news media's kind of mixed, very checkered history of reporting on the subject of UFOs. You know, um, oftentimes it's been uh, as uh, a kind of uh, uh, oddity uh, where it's been mixed with a giggle factor. Um, <clears throat> you know, and, and, and to a degree, the news media has been uh, uh, wittingly or unwittingly an accomplice in kind of uh, spreading inaccurate information about, about UFOs, um, which is why in the last couple of years since well, I guess December of 2017, when the New York Times began reporting on uh, the rather sensational story of uh, the U.S. Navy's engagement with anomalous aerial phenomena uh, and the accompanying videos that were published by them and other outlets, um, we've, we've seen a kind of shift where um, the language of the reporting is uh, very measured and uh, non-sensational, 
and uh, as a result of that has has really resulted in turning some heads that might previously have easily dismissed the the subject of UFOs. Um, so in that sense, there's there's certainly reason for optimism, uh, but it does relate to our story uh, in as much as the footage that uh, our protagonist, Jeremy, is wrestling with uh, doesn't have the uh, official uh, verification of the U.S. military. It doesn't have any sort of corroboration uh, other than the you know, forensics that are offered to him by an intelligence operator, uh, excuse me, an intelligence operative who was an associate of his father. So um, he has to deal with this. And uh, his his journey is further complicated, uh, without giving too much away, but uh, <laughs> the, the current president at the time of the story, uh, who is not patterned on our actual current president, but rather on a Barack Obama-like character, uh, is having to wrestle with complications of whether to declassify um, the technology that is associated with uh, the contemporary aerospace company uh, attempting to migrate its device into into commercial aviation. When you, uh, I know that the filmmaking process is not just one of being creative; it also involves getting financing and getting support and getting people involved in the project in many different ways. When you brought this to the table, because you wrote the story in addition to making the film, uh, when you brought this to the table, did anybody raise an eyebrow? Yes. I mean, I couldn't get arrested with the screenplay, <laughs> you know, uh, in, in Hollywood, so to speak. Um, it was a very difficult journey uh, setting the film up. But what I found with past films, and in particular my previous feature, Letters from the Big Man, um, is that those difficulties really ultimately served to, they served a beneficial purpose in allowing me to refine the story further and refine my approach to dealing with the material. Um, ultimately, both films were made on very small budgets, but what we were very blessed with is some extremely talented collaborators, both in front of and behind the camera. Uh, I was so so pleased with the cast that our uh, casting director, Tina Kebecker, uh, brought to the film. Uh, people like Campbell Scott uh, and Agnes Bruckner, um, George Gerdes, uh, Leith Burke, and as well as some uh, wonderful American character actors, uh, well-known character actors in smaller roles uh, like David Clennon uh, and Monty Markham. Um, and my good friend Ian Hart, uh, with whom I first worked 30 years ago on The Hours and Times, uh, one of the great British actors of his generation, plays uh, the role of James Forrestal, uh, first Secretary of Defense, who had an untimely death in the late 1940s. And uh, it was a huge pleasure to work with Ian again almost 30 years to the day after we made The Hours and Times together. One of the biggest challenges in filmmaking, uh, or particularly casting, is when you have to cast a very, very important historical figure. Uh, and in in the in the film, um, you actually uh, cast, I think, more than one president, right? You cast two, uh, Eisenhower, yes. of course, being one. What what are the challenges involved there, and how'd you get it? How'd you how'd you make it happen so effectively? Well, let's see, Eisenhower, you know is a character who has been dealt with in the past in films. Uh, nearly all of them have been wartime, wartime portrayals of sure. him. Uh, 
certainly uh, Robert Duvall did a wonderful job playing him in the miniseries that was made in the 70s that dealt with his his relationship with uh, Kay Summersby uh, during the war. Um, and, you know, other distinguished actors like E.G. Marshall and John Slattery have played him. Uh, but for our film, we're showing, again, a, a more introspective side of him that wasn't really typical of, of Eisenhower. Um, and perhaps, you know, it is related to how advanced he was uh, at the time of the story. But in answer to your question, it's always, you know, difficult casting an historical figure, and you sort of have to make a determination whether to go for a, a very exact likeness, a very exact technical impersonation, or whether uh, to go with somebody, hopefully, who captures the essence uh, and psychology of the person. And in our case, George Gerdes, I think, did a wonderful job capturing uh, Eisenhower's um, uh, goodness as a man, uh, not in any sort of uh, sweet or, or uh, uh, romantic way, but in in a way that reflects uh, the tremendous experience he had, and you know the 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 amount of the American century that his service covered. Uh, from the war years uh, through his presidency. Um, so George was one of the last people I met for the role, and, and when he came in, I, I kind of felt that he had a handle on the more esoteric or metaphysical aspects of the story that uh, he would be portraying, and I knew that he could do a good good job. So uh, I was really pleased with that. Um, the role of the Obama-like president, played by Leith Burke, um, was very difficult in a different way. Uh, Leith was literally the first actor who came in to read for our casting director, Tina Kebecker. And uh, as soon as he came in, I mean, both she and I were just uh, floored by how right he was for the part. And such a capable, uh, dedicated performer uh, who was able to bring, I think, the tremendous intelligence and compassion you know, of an Obama-like character, but also the ambiguity of his feelings about this topic and the fact that his uh, character has been um, out of the loop to a large degree uh, with respect to uh, the UFO information, uh, has a limited amount of information, and indeed, as a result of that, uh, is is needing more information uh, in the story, which is where you know Eisenhower uh, Eisenhower enters it. So uh, it was challenging, certainly, to to cast two presidents, but extremely rewarding to work with with these talented players. So, as I say, we were extremely blessed in in that aspect. As the story was being told, um, and and. You start. You started to see the cast bring it to life for you. Um, that must be a, a tremendous sense of satisfaction. Not only um, because you're seeing the project come together as it is as it as you, it is happening in front of you, but the story itself is coming together, and you know that the story is ultimately going to be told uh, for people. Um, you know, who a, a might not be uh, familiar with the ideas, but secondly, um, you know, may have some real curiosities there. How does that? personally feel uh, you must have a s tremendous sense of satisfaction as you see this come together and it came together very effectively 
Thank you. Well, it, it was extremely, extremely satisfying uh, uh, after having worked with the material just by myself for so long, uh, the very long process of going down, you know, many hallways and opening many doors that I didn't necessarily walk through, but I needed to open uh, nonetheless. Um, and then, you know, I, I sort of feel like the writing of a screenplay is, is never done, and uh, you it really continues all through the shooting process and into the editing. It, it's an organic process. But the, the period in which you really uh, see it come to life and, and recognize the deficiencies in it is when uh, you have real actors working with you and interpreting uh, the text and finding a way to interpret the text and finding a way to uh, wrap their, you know, wrap their heads and their hearts around uh, what needs to happen. And that process, you know, for a director can be extremely revealing. And, you know, it, it's very important, I think, to be flexible and to be accommodating and to, to, to learn from the rehearsal process and to learn from um, an actor telling you you know, what is doable or not doable or what uh, is making sense or not making sense. And I think in the case of the 11th Green, the biggest challenge throughout the uh, writing of it as well as the editing of it was dealing with the informational aspect of the story and finding a balance between the informational aspect and the emotional aspect. And, of course, the emotional aspect ultimately had to be the most important uh, but I was able to work with somebody like Campbell Scott, who's also a director himself, and he was able to very carefully walk me through certain things that were not quite right yet and say, well, what are we really trying to you know, get at here? So I'm just grateful to have had, excuse me, to have had collaborators of their, you know, of their magnitude to work with. You, um, have opened a door here. One of the things I find very, very uh, curious is that almost, I'm trying to think of how many presidents in the last 20, 30 years uh, have during their campaign said, when I get into office, I'm going to release information about the UFO files. And then nothing happens. You know, these presidents get into office and very little changes. Do you believe, based on the research you've done and the, uh, you know, the, the, the knowledge that you've gained from this particular project, that those presidents are kept in the dark? Or does the information not exist to the level that we think it does? Or do you think once they get in there, they see it and they say, wow, now I understand why we can't release it? What are your thoughts on any of that? I think it's probably closest to the latter. Um, you know, our president, Eisenhower, in, in the 11th Green, says they give you just enough, just enough to convince you the secrecy needs to continue, and often they don't give you the, tr the true reasons for the secrecy. And I think that's, that's kind of true. Uh, certainly Jimmy Carter was perhaps the most mm -hmm. outspoken about his intention uh, to uh, make public some of the classified information about this going in, and ultimately he, he was not really successful doing that. Um, and, you know, he's a man who was a UFO experiencer himself. He had had uh, a sighting uh, when he was governor and had reported that to NICAP, as was, you know, President Reagan, uh, who had had kind of a fantastic, you know, experience uh, when he was governor of California, um, in which, uh, 
you know, a UFO was um, was pacing him in his plane, and they followed it, and and so on. So, um, I think that any elected official is certainly regarded as potentially uh, a security risk, ultimately, even though they're bound, of course, by their oaths. Uh, nevertheless, um, I believe it was always the intention of the special group uh, that handled this information after the war that it, the group would, to a great extent, uh, remain autonomous and separate from government so that government could, in effect, become <laughs> simply the the body that we project onto uh, uh, all of our uh, gripes and, and, and concerns about this. But really, a lot of the information was, was kept out of there, certainly kept out of the hands of, of, of elected officials. Um, and indeed, you know, this is illustrated to a degree by the, uh, the so-called um, uh, Admiral Wilson uh, 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 discussion that happened uh, between him and the physicist uh, Eric Davis, uh, and these notes were released about a year ago, um, alleged notes, and they document uh, Admiral Wilson some years after having left the Defense Intelligence Agency as its head, uh, document uh, his experience trying to get to the bottom of a particular special access program that allegedly dealt with exotic technology, and it describes the way in which he, you know, was stonewalled. And although he ultimately got a meeting with the project manager and the security manager for for the project, the information that they were conveying to him seemingly uh, was was incomplete, very incomplete, and. Intriguingly, also, these notes described the way in which uh, an incident took place in which congressional oversight was getting too close to a particular special access program, and uh, measures were taken to ensure that that never happens again. So, on the one hand, now we have a situation in which members of Congress are more comfortable talking about the subject and requesting information, as did Senator Rubio uh, recently, mm-hmm. um, uh, with respect to uh, the the working group that now exists and is housed in the Office of Naval Intelligence, dealing with UFOs, um, it's safer for for representatives to to talk about it and request oversight. Um, but there does seem to be a history of of oversight being negated and, uh, uh, you know, circumvented by by particularly the so-called carved-out or unacknowledged uh, type of, of special access program. So who do you think then, based again on the information that you've had to research to put this film together, are the keepers of this information? Is it the military? Is it a shadow government? Is it, um, is it uh, something more nefarious than that? Well, it would seem that most of the information resides in private industry, in in the aerospace contractors who run the special access programs, uh, and the small number of individuals who have access to to those programs. Um, but as far as the 
you know, the special studies group or interagency intelligence group or whatever you want to call it now, uh, what has come down to us is, you know, the so-called Majestic Organization or um, MJ-12, um, what that has evolved into, uh, I certainly couldn't say. Uh, but there does seem to be that type of an organization in existence, and there has seemed to be uh, an organization like that uh, since the late 1940s. Um, and, you know, we, we can see the way in which certain public close encounter events are handled and, and uh, secured, uh, and uh, the way in which evidence is, is dealt with. Um, uh, so that, that does seem to suggest the existence of that type of an organization. The um, film um, differs a little bit um, from what we would consider to be a classic discussion of UFOs. How does it differ? Well, I think, I hope that it tries to approach the subject soberly um, and not on the basis of fantasy or science fiction, but mm -hmm. rather on the basis of what seems to be uh, the core story, as they say, uh, of how the events unfolded after the Second World War, um, how uh, a special studies group seemed to, to have come about, um, and how uh, really those intersections with us were, were premature for we as a society really seemed not to be ready to, uh, to assimilate the information. Um, they're certainly on the part of the, the uh, military and government leaders, there was a fresh memory of Orson Welles's radio broadcast, War of the Worlds, from, from 1938, and the way in which that produced... Uh, Panic, panic uh, yeah. despite being just a radio program. Um, and I think to the extent that a lot of the answers were not known by people in authority and to the extent that government and military were perceived as a kind of patriarchy that should have all the answers and didn't have all the answers in this particular regard, that made a lot of people very uneasy. So, you know, how, how could we talk about it? Um, uh, of course, we're in a much different situation now, and whatever acclimatization needed to take place has taken place to a large degree. And yet, despite that, there still is this aspect uh, that's been called cognitive dissonance uh, in the way in which people, and a lot of very smart people, even respond to the mention of UFOs and to the suggestion of the reality of the phenomenon. And you know, for those people, uh, really, there's an aspect of their being not very well informed because the existence of UFOs is, as has been pointed out, a, an empirical reality. That There's no question about that. But I think where many people run afoul is by conflating the so-called extraterrestrial hypothesis with the empirical reality of UFOs. And as a result of that, and, and that having been encouraged, certainly, uh, in the media over many, many years, uh, we now are in a situation where, you know, the waters are really muddied, and um, 
it's harder for an individual to cut through that and really, you know, ascertain what he or she feels on a gut level, you know, about this and, you know, what it means for, for our society and all of our institutions, which is why some of the recent reporting uh, in its sober tone ha- has been important. So in the case of the 11th Green, I, I you know, would like it to be um, a sober, uh, on the one hand, sober discussion of this. And on the other hand, you know, cinematically speaking, I, I would hope that um, people take some pleasure in it, uh, take some pleasure in the way in which the history is speculated about and, and dramatized, um, and, and perhaps, you know, inspire uh, at least some degree of, of reflection on this subject, separate and apart from all of the noisy, uh, you know, flashy visual effects type of filmmaking that, that we often tend to see. Oh, uh, th- this is probably going to be one of those questions like asking a parent which your favorite child is. But one of our chat room members, we have several questions floating through here, so I'm going to try to hit a couple of these. But uh, one of them asked what your favorite part of the film was. That's probably a tough one to answer, huh? Yeah, you know, I, I think, let's see, I guess probably like anybody who has an interest in this subject, uh, I kind of was giddy at the thought that one of my characters would be offered, you know, reels of film that actually document some of this. So it's it's like everybody's sort of dream to find uh, uh, a case of, of film that's been sequestered in somebody's garage you know, in a paint cabinet for all these years and have it contain, uh, you know, some incredible footage. In reality, I mean, I spent a lot of time at the National Archives going through um, uh, footage shot in the mid-20th century by, you know, excellent uh, military cameramen and looking for material that could be utilized uh, for, I, I always knew that straightforward archival material would be a part of these discursive dream time scenes between two presidents. So that was a very rewarding part of the filmmaking as well, finding footage that would serve to illustrate our, our story in that way. Another question we have in our chat room is related to alien races. Now, again, as you research this, and we know that the information, particularly the official information that might be endorsed by the government itself is rather scant. However, uh, did you come up with anything that might talk about various extraterrestrial races in, in, as opposed to just the flying saucer phenomenon? Well, nothing that is, um, you know, that is verified. Uh, there certainly is a lot of information out there. Uh, and really, given the, the volume of, of information, some of which is legitimate and some of which probably isn't, um, the the reader's discernment or the viewer's discernment is is really important, and I, I think you you just sort of have to read the best material you can get your hands on, and then distill it, you know, for yourself and, right. and discover what feels real or, or doesn't, you know. But but try to gravitate towards the most most reliable firsthand uh, primary uh, you know primary sources. What about um, uh, information related to Eisenhower? and Edwards Air Force Base uh, as it relates to this this discussion about UFOs? 
Well, let's see. The folklore surrounding Eisenhower and Edwards Air Base, I, I believe, originates with a letter that was written in 1954 uh, by Gerald Light, who was a mystic and lecturer. And he was corresponding with his publisher, uh, Mead Lane, of the Borderland Sciences Research Foundation, I believe was the name of it. And in it, you know, he described this meeting at Edwards, which was then called Murak Field, that took place between Eisenhower and uh, a visitor from another world. It, which, of course, begs the question, how did, you know, Gerald Light come into this, this information? And I need to ask you, when you went into the project, what were your thoughts on all of this? Did you think this was just folklore? Did you, did you believe there was something to it? And did you feel any differently at the end of the project? That's an interesting question, because I think in the back of my mind, I always felt that there was some legitimacy to it. And I don't think that that was based, again, on having read very much about it, but mm-hmm. it was just a feeling that I had. Um, and, you know, I, I can't say what, what accounts for that. Um, there was something familiar about it and something that led me to really think that there was some substance there to it. As far as where I wound up at the other end of, of the project, you know, I can say that my my interest in the phenomenon of UFOs has deepened, certainly. Um, my belief in some fact, at least some factual basis to President Eisenhower's involvement in these affairs is certainly very much deepened. Um, you know, and, and again, this doesn't come so much from official uh, official material. Uh, there is some interesting uh, uh, unophys- un- unofficial or metaphysical or, or, or uh, mediumistic material that, that deals with this, and uh, uh, that tends to support, you know, the idea that there is some basis to it. Um, it's also interesting, very interesting to hear modern presidents talk about this. You know, for instance, uh, recent presidents we've heard all appear on, you know, late-night talk shows yeah. um, uh, answering questions about UFOs and their knowledge of this. And they seem to be behaving almost in the manner of floating trial balloons. And I do tend to think that, you know, both the presidents, the excuse me, the people occupying the office of the presidency, as well as the intelligence community, all are taking note of the reaction to this and, you know, and to what degree we have wrestled the giggle factor to the ground and are able to respond to this in, in something other than uh, that that fashion. So, um, you know, my, my interest, yeah, certainly has deepened, and hopefully my discernment has as well, and uh, there's certainly are going to be, I think, interesting revelations uh, in coming years. You know, my interest really is in the sociological aspect of it and how this information is assimilated, uh, how mores change, how public attitudes change, and how it becomes okay to have a reasonable conversation about UFOs. Yeah, and I, uh, something just anecdotally I've noticed just watching um, um, some of the primetime news programs that – discussion of ufos is showing up in places that i had never thought i would see it and certainly hadn't seen it before so it is becoming a little bit more prime time if you will um we're almost out of time here uh chris where can people actually view this film that we've been talking about tonight well yes right now the 11th green is available uh 
uh, at the theatrical at home website. So uh, this is a website where a uh, streaming purchase at the site will benefit theater of your choice as well. So this is really the end of its theatrical window, uh, and they can find it just by going to my website, uh, ChristopherMunch.com or theatricalathome.com. And again, your purchase there will help the theater uh, of your choice, uh, as if you had you know, attended in person and bought a ticket that way. And then the film will be migrating into uh, a, a general VOD release on the usual platforms, uh, probably in late September um, on uh, Amazon and hopefully iTunes. I have to just ask you one more question about an, another one of your films, and uh, that one's called Letters from the Big Man. Is that a, is that a, a Sasquatch film? It is a Sasquatch film, and like the Eleventh Green, it attempts to deal with it in a, in a sober fashion. Uh, it's the story of a, an artist and government hydrologist who uh, is on a stream survey, and in the course of that, she winds up interacting with a Sasquatch, uh, who becomes, you know, a very powerful figure in her life. Uh, but it treats the subject. Again, in the non-sensational realm, the, the Sasquatch is a normal character. He's not a, a fanged monster or anything like that. And uh, it, it kind of builds on the more metaphysical and, uh, indeed, Native American uh, traditions uh, surrounding Sasquatch. Uh, uh, Lily Rabe plays the lead in that. Uh, ex- excellent performance by her. Uh, very good makeup effects by Lee Romare. So. Do I do I do I dare ask you what's next on the plane? You've got a Bigfoot, you've got a UFO film. What's next? <laughs> or haven't you haven't you had time to cool down from this one yet? <laughs> I, I've been developing a couple of things, but I'm not very far along with either of them at this point. So probably too early to say, but uh, definitely you know am going to be following in the in the in the vein of you know very committed filmmaking, I guess you would say, very uh, passionate uh, filmmaking, uh, and probably, you know, a subject that is kind of a lacuna or little uh, little recognized. Again, this film that we've been talking about tonight is called The 11th Green. Christopher, thank you so much for being here and sharing the story with us, and uh, we appreciate your hard work on this. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate your uh, talking about it with me very much. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.